Welcome to the Anthropology and Business Podcast, where you'll learn about the many ways anthropology is applied in business and why business anthropology is one of the most effective lenses for making sense of organizations and consumers. Through conversations with leading anthropologists working in advertising, marketing, consumer behavior, organizational culture, user experience, and many other roles, you'll learn firsthand what it means to do business anthropology and how the work differs from academic anthropology. We'll discuss issues like the pace and depth of research in business, our visibility and influence as practitioners, and what we can do to build our brand. We will also focus on the value and impact of our research in business so that we can help business leaders understand why they should be hiring anthropologists. I'm your host, Matt Arts, a business anthropologist specializing in design anthropology and working at the intersection of product management, user experience, and business strategy. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Anthropology and Business Podcast. I'm Matt Arts, and today I'm here with Leanne Potter. Leanne is the head of SecOps for SADA and the founder and uh, cyber anthropologist at the AnthroSecurus. So, Leanne, thanks for coming on. Would you mind telling everybody how you came into anthropology? Hi, yeah. Um, well, I came uh, free to anthropology in an unusual route. So I was actually a wedding photographer for quite a number of years. And then when my uh, niece started going, because it's quite a physically demanding job, um, I decided to sort of have a look around, see what I want to do. Kind of fell into a role which was being a uh, project manager for a charity. And the uh, charity got given a quite a lot of funding. And their brief was, you get this funding pop, but you've got to solve destitution in your local area. And that was the brief. No specifics, but that was the brief. And so uh, we kind of put the word out that we had this pot of money to solve destitution. And we had no idea what was really going to come through our doors. But what we were noticing was that people were coming into our service and they were being disadvantaged socially because of their inability to access online services. So I became really fascinated by what's known as the digital divide, which suggests that if you do not have access to um, the internet or online services that you're socially disadvantaged in some way. And it became such a fascination that while I was doing this job, I started doing my master's in anthropology. I'd previously done um, a master's in English literature, so totally unrelated to what would later become my uh, current job, which is in cybersecurity. But um, as I was doing, um, focusing on digital anthropology, I was really interested in how we engaged with uh, each other online and how that culture was developing. And as I say, particularly due to the case of the work I was doing, how the internet can really affect your social situations and, you know, your overall health and mental well-being. And I, I just became fascinated by how companies were building these products and services. And in particular, what we were seeing was um, the, ben the UK benefit system had just all moved online. So whereas before you could go into a what was known as a job centre and, and what we call it signing on, which is sign on and get your benefits while you're looking for work, um, you could do that in person. Whereas we were finding people coming into our services were going to the job centre and po being pointed to a bank of computers and saying, you figure it out. Now, quite a lot of these people had never touched a computer before. So it was really unfair for the government to sort of say, this is how we're going to do things from going forward and not really provide any assistance or really care about that user journey in terms of how are people who have never used a computer before going to access these services online. 
which is why I became fascinated with actually how can I get involved in technology and use what I'm learning as an anthropologist and the things I'm applying as an anthropologist um, to really influence technological decisions for the better, really, because I, I just felt at the time that we were moving too fast in terms of digital technology and we were just losing a lot of people on the way behind. And that was a sort of theories I was sort of positing, you know, a few years before COVID. And then we saw when COVID hit, actually, that really was the case. You know, you saw kids who, you know, were homeschooled, but they didn't have a computer or maybe there was one computer between the whole family. And how are they going to get the education they need? And it really does have an impact. How we use technology nowadays really does have an impact. I'm really interested in that cultural awareness piece around the technology we use. And now really interested in how the technology we use influences how we behave online in terms of cybersecurity behaviours. So as you said, it's quite a journey from, you know, wedding photography to what you're doing today. And, you know, appreciate there were some stops along the way. But cybersecurity still you know, it, it certainly requires a number of skills that in, in your description aren't, you know, still immediately apparent. And so, you know, there's, uh, tell us a little bit about how, you know, how you really got into cybersecurity, some of the skills you acquired along the way, particularly like on the technical side. Well, as I said, um, I was I was interested in actually working in tech so I could have an influence in tech using what I'd learned. However, told you my background was English literature degree and uh, anthropology masters those two things don't really equate to uh, going into a tech job so I thought at the time and uh, I still sort of question my like my logic oh I'll just teach myself how to code uh, become a software developer um, and so I spent every evening weekend in between um, doing my day job learning how to code uh, using free online resources, which there is plenty, plenty of them on there. Um, and within about five months, I was um, interview ready and I was lucky enough um, to see a position um, at our National Health Service, they called the NHS, um, and they were offering uh, graduate schemes. Now, uh, at the time I was in my 30s, I was definitely uh, one of the older graduates applying for that. Um, but I applied for their um, software development scheme and uh, I actually got in and it was on the basis that, you know, in the interview, I was like, you know, I, I have only just started learning the technical skills. However, what I can do is tell you all about what I've learned about the human element of technology and how the products and services you create as a health service will influence, um, you know, health decisions and behaviours for the users that you're trying to create these products and services for. And I think that's kind of what swung the balance for me there. Um, and that's how I got into there. And I kind of got the cybersecurity bill quite early on. And the reason why that was is when I was there, I was doing all my sort of, uh, you know, anthro, sorry, my, my sort of anthro technology spiel. Um, and, you know, sort of evangelizing um, better, um, culturally more aware um, technology products. I was trying to do things alongside the security team. Now, the security team, and as is the case in quite a lot of security teams, um, it's very siloed. Um, sometimes it is literally physically siloed away from the rest of the organisation, rest of tech. Um, a lot of it is due to the sensitive nature of the work they do, but also because quite a lot of them quite like being siloed away from the business. It's just that kind of... Um, personality type, as it were, that quite like gets drawn into sort of cyber security. Um, and it was actually a real struggle for me to actually 
build those relationships um, and foster that collaboration in that department. And so I became fascinated of if I can't, you know, someone who is, you know, trained in understanding culture and behaviours, if I can't bridge those gaps, then how is, you know, the average person who isn't trained in this going to bridge those gaps? And that, to me, became a glaring area of potential risk. You know, so not only were we creating, you know, I was trying to create products and services that would benefit people and be more, um, you know, aware of why we're doing the things we're doing and, um, you know, the context in which we were doing things. There was also this other element about how are we going to keep these people secure? This is health data. And so I um, begged for about a year for the cybersecurity people to let me into their team. Um, and eventually they did. Um, and that's when I started doing some really interesting work. A few things I'd like to maybe just unpack in there first. Um, you know, there are a number of anthropologists, who, increasingly I would say there's anthropologists who are interested in developing some you know, basic kind of technical skills, you know, in for the sake of like digital anthropology. And so, I know there's lots of resources, as you said, in a quick Google, we'll find many of them. But how did you approach that? Like, was there anything that you learned um, from studying software engineering that you think would be helpful for others? I guess the big thing I learned was it's really not as scary as it looks from the outside. Um, I think, and, and that sort of subsequently went on to influence, I, I started doing um, code clubs for non-technical members of staff. And the idea wasn't to make everyone software developers. The idea was just actually to debunk the myth that you needed to, um, you know, be a complete tech whiz to be able to do this job, which wasn't the case. It was software, learning skills like software development is a bit like learning a language. And in the same way, when you're in school, you know, you, you, you sometimes for a while have to do two languages, like German and French is, is quite common in the UK. You know, you have the sort of same kind of vocab, verbs, and things like that, like you would do in, in, in English as well. You kind of get these building blocks. And really, the language itself doesn't really matter about, it's the learning about how things fit. And that can really appeal to a lot of people. And it's not necessarily an out and out technical barrier, I believe. And I think so the biggest thing that you need to remind yourself when you're thinking about actually, I'm going to start learning these technical skills is that you can learn these technical skills. There is, you know, um, you know, no wizard behind the curtain telling you I'm the great and powerful Oz. It really is achievable. It does take effort, don't get me wrong. And there is a learning curve, you know, the, you know, you start doing things and, um, you know, oh, you go, this is actually a lot easier, I think. And then you hit that curve where things start getting challenging. And then that's when you have lots of self-doubt. When you get to that point, I would really recommend that you find what I call your tech tribe, which is go to meetups, go on LinkedIn, go find people who are on a very similar journey or have been on that journey, that learning journey, and just talk to them. And they will reassure you, yes, there is a point where learning tech gets difficult, but then you become master of it again. And then you, you go through that peak and, and troughs again of, you know, oh, this is easy again. And then and then you'll find something else that's hard. That's just the way life is. But the way you keep motivated is by finding and connecting with others around you that, you know, are going on that similar journey, have gone on that similar journey to kind of keep you going. I think that was the biggest motivator for me. And I was lucky at the time, you know, because um, COVID hadn't hit yet and things like that. And so I was able to go to various uh, tech meetups um, almost every night and, and listen to the stories of, you know, people talking about their tech journey and their careers and, and understanding 
not everyone has this traditional computer science into a tech job route, you know, that there is other alternatives into tech and there certainly is. In summary, one of the things I hear from, from that description is that for an anthropologist, you know, just think of it as studying another language, which is very, very, you know, very comfortable for most anthropologists, right? Um, of course, and finding your tribe is also a good recommendation, but think of it like a language versus, you know, maybe, you know, some other ac some other type of acquisition. But so, so then you move on, you know, so you're in NHS. Um, so, you know, essentially how you pitch that sort of the humanistic side of tech is, uh, you know, very much in line with what has grown and matured into UX today. But were they talking about it in that way? Now, the NHS have a fantastic uh, UX um, team, but a lot of their background is, you know, design and marketing and not necessarily humanities. So it was bringing that kind of additional element. Um, and in the UK, you know, we've been doing it quite well for quite a while in terms of um, the, uh, having that behavioural science unit in, in quite a lot of our governmental bodies, you know, since the nudge came out and things like that. Um, however, they just needed that kind of almost like extra spice to just remember, you know, it's not just about the happy path. It's about the circumstances that person is living through on a day-to-day -day basis that makes them choose that happy path. You know, it's, it's you know, the background they come from, the education they've had, um, the distractions they have around them while they're accessing this application, you know. Are they doing it in between shifts, you know, that they've done like a 12-hour shift or something? Or, you know, are they sat isolated at home? All those things play into that context of that user journey. And it's about adding that extra kind of layer onto it that goes beyond just nice design, which is very useful, um, and understanding the user journey in just that slightly different way. Understand why they would appreciate that. But the leap to get, you know, as you said, kind of beyond uh, the firewall of into the to the cyber team, was there, is that the approach? Is that the perspective that they appreciated, or did you still have to frame it a slightly different way for them? Yes, there was it was, it was a bit more of a challenge that one. Whereas um, the software development team want to make a good product, like and there's no there's no software developer on this earth that doesn't want to make a good product. You know, no one goes into work wanting to do a bad job, um, and you know, especially if they've got user researchers backed up, they've already kind of think been thinking in that mindset anyways about the happy path. Security people are very um, Black and white dichotomy thinking, secure, insecure. And obviously we know as anthropologists, life isn't black and white, it's full of grey areas and uh, long may it continue because that's the grey areas of the spice of life. But it's about when, when I sort of came in to sort of do my spiel, um, I was lucky, I, I did have technical chops as well. So, you know, I, I, that's my path into the door. But um, it's not like I was um, overly technical. My my big thing was actually, I got in there and I recognised very quickly in a way that I feel no one else did um, joining this team from as a new starter, that actually their way they interacted with each other was impacting how they were act acting with the business. And so I, I sort of started working on the team that way in terms of, you guys aren't working really well together, how are you going to work well? For the rest of the organization and perhaps it's the way you are acting with each other that's preventing people from actually wanting to reach out to you and engage security now one of the biggest problems security teams has is lack of engagement like people don't want to speak to security teams because security often says no um and often 
you know, security team make people feel stupid. You know, we'd say, oh, why have you done that? Thinking that everyone's a security expert. They're not. Um, or, you know, they slow down progress. And so then we get really mad about not being engaged. And then that cycle continues because then people see, oh, well, they're always really mad. I'm not going to engage them. And then we, we get really mad that no one engages us. And it just continues that way. And so I tried selling it is let's start working on ourselves. And at first I did it um, a bit covertly. So I started with um, participant observation um, and sort of understanding how people were. And in a way, at the time, it really did feel like I was uh, I was doing proper participant observation, um, kind of really embedding myself into that culture, into that way of working and things like that. And understanding what were those interpersonal relationships? What did they believe as a collective? And um, where were the boundaries of, you know, what was right in their world and what was wrong in their world? And that was really interesting for me. Um, and because I had this previous experience of being a developer from the outside and then coming into this world, um, I was able to sort of understand it from both perspectives, which then I can start feeding, okay, well, you know, the reason why no one's engaging with you is because you slow down progress. And now, why don't we make it so that we're a bit more um, open and uh, enabling people to want to engage with us? And then you'll start seeing that engagement rate go up. And so it was little interventions and discussions like that once I kind of got to know what what their motivations were um, that able enabled me to do things like teach them how to do reciprocity really well um, and give people like the gift of access you know, security access in a secure way, because quite often security decisions um, are historic, because um, often the security team is the most uh, underfunded, under-resourced, underloved team in, in an organisation. And so historically, they've had to be very self-preservationist in the past, because there's just not been enough people to say, to, to have proper security due diligence on all the controls that need to be put in place. So the easiest thing to do in that situation is to say no to more things. And so what you find is, is when you go into an organisation, there's quite a lot of no decisions that have been made years ago. But maybe technology has moved on and they can now start saying yes to things because they've got different ways of monitoring or controlling that. And so I, I was teaching the team about, you know, giving people the gift of access in that reciprocal relationship. And then, you you know, that um, understanding that, if you know, you give that gift, you might get something in return that's uh, even bigger. And that sort of moral obligation to reciprocate. And I was just finding elements like that really interesting to see that kind of grow and develop. And by the time I left, um, people were engaging daily basis on, with that team. And that was using anthropology. Yeah, sure. And um, you know, as we know, all business problems are kind of human problems in the end, right? And so, you know, it's it's interesting you start, you know, of course, with the organizational culture piece of it, uh, classic sort of business anthropology space. But, um, you know, working out from there, you, of course, also have to take into consideration end users, you know, if you will, and their own vulnerabilities. And so how might have you sort of grown, you know, starting from where you did, how have you grown it since then to also take into perspective the vulnerabilities of, of, of those end users and, um, you know, helped maybe the team realize that it's not always about tools, which... I'm presuming sometimes it, it's often about tools, right, for, for engineers. But, you know, how have you helped them see that it's much more sort of nuanced than that? One area in particular, um, 
and it's becoming much more prevalent, much more important is is what's known as security awareness. Um, but I, I'm starting to more prefer the term human risk interventions because um, awareness only goes so far, you know. Um, I'm aware Kim Kardashian exists, but it's not going to influence my behavior, you know. It's, so awareness can only go so far. So I prefer, like, let's start thinking about how do we really influence people and behaviors um, that for the betterment of the organization. Um, and so that's in particular an area where anthropology is just an amazing bedfellow for it. It's using anthropology in that sense has been crucial to the success of the. Um, human risk programs I've, I've set up in the past and also just changing the mindsets of the team that's running that. So I've, I've, I've hired people in the past to sort of run those engagements from learning and development um, and, and areas like that. But then applying that cultural element to it has been, has enabled them to really cater their message to a wide variety of audience. Because I'm sure you worked in organizations and I'm sure your listeners have worked in organizations where the security awareness program is pretty much a once a year, um, half an hour computer-based um, tick box exercise where you maybe watch a few videos, but more, more than likely you just click next quite a lot of times um, and, until you answer five questions at the end. Uh, if you don't get them right, you just try again until you get it right. You haven't really learned anything at all. I wanted to do something more than that. I wanted to make sure we were really understanding what were the controls we put in place doing to the people in the organization i wanted to do that research piece in actually were our interventions making people more insecure were people finding workarounds that were much more dangerous than the things we were trying to prevent them from doing and often it, that was the case and too often in security, controls do get put into place. Um, often it's a decision made by the security team without consultation um, with any of the one any of the people it's going to impact. And then once those controls in place, very rarely, if ever, do the security team ever turn around and say, "Now, how are those controls treating you?" Instead, they just think, "Well, I I know best, and you know that's going to work, and that's going to prevent things from happening." Um, but then when I started doing a deep dive using sort of um, anthropology I started seeing actually the workarounds were much worse and by workarounds I mean for example one of the things uh, an organization prevented uh, people from doing was having bluetooth headphones because there is a small risk it's minute by the way a small risk that someone um, can transmit data using bluetooth now I don't know if you've ever transmitted data using bluetooth it's very very slow um, connection drops you have to be very close so unfortunately, the organization at that point, again, going back to that, um, you know, saying no to more things, they said no to Bluetooth connections. And therefore, going forward, when technology changed and Bluetooth headphones became a thing, Bluetooth, Bluetooth headphones couldn't be used. But when we reviewed that security decision going forward, because we started seeing that, you know, obviously developers like to listen to music while they code, for example, and that's it's almost like a productivity tool there. Um, we started seeing that they were downloading what is known as PowerShell scripts. Now, PowerShell scripts are one of the most powerful things you can do on a computer. Um, and they were pulling them from online from who knows where and who knew if they were malicious or not. And using these scripts to run to make to enable the Bluetooth controls that we had put on. And so that actually that 
workaround, and that's what it's called, a workaround, was actually more insecure than us than the, the risk we were trying to prevent. And so it was just having that awareness of, you know, why do people want to wear Bluetooth headphones? It's not because they want to transmit data. It's because they want to listen to music while they work. And it's just about understanding that holistic piece, which is so vital for cybersecurity. Because everything we do is connected to technology and our ability to protect what we're doing becomes ever more important as the level of information we put in there, the level of information we put out there becomes much more valuable. You know, speaking of all of this, it's clear like the, the tie-ins to sort of organizational and you could even say like, you know, consumer behavior in the sense of if you look at the end users as, as consumers in, of security in this sense. Um, thinking of like through the, the classic business anthropology definition, I'm wondering, do you pull from design at all? And is there any opportunity to kind of co-create, you know, security solutions? Oh, I'm glad you asked that. Um, it's something I'm really, really passionate about. Um, so obviously was a photographer, so I had an art school background. So I am really interested in design as well. Um, and what's what I've always found interesting, there's something known as um, the kind of security usability functionality triangle. Um, if, if you're not aware of it, just for the benefit of your um, listeners. Um, so think of a triangle. And at, at the top of the triangle, you've got usability, and then you've got functionality at one, one of the other ends, and then security. Now, the theory is, is the closer you move towards security, so the one on uh, the bottom left, um, you are actually moving away from usability and functionality. So the theory is, is you can't have all three. Um, and likewise, you know, if you want more functionality, you've got to move away from security and usability. And if you want usability, um, security and functionality kind of take a back burner. However, I don't think that is the case. And I think we shouldn't settle for that. And I think that's where good design processes can come in place. And what I say to organizations when I talk about an anthrocentric approach to security is, do you have a user researcher team? Start there and start getting them to ask questions about security uh, in a way that, you know, your traditional security person probably couldn't because the user researcher team, the design team are really good at understanding what was said, but also what isn't said. Because, you know, yourself, um, when you're, when you're right, you know, get a survey, you always kind of, you're never hundred percent honest on a survey you know how how was your experience today yeah it was fine what can you learn from that not much um but also sometimes you you want to put an particularly if it's a work one you want to put an answer in that you think they're looking for as well however if you engage people like designer user research and into the creating your sort of security interventions they're able to kind of spot these elements where you know people are kind of Understanding the system, not understanding the system, and having that more nuanced expression and understanding. Yeah, I think it's a, probably an interesting area to explore and something that's wide open. It, it's not it's not my area of focus, but I would suspect that there's not as much uh, literature in that space, and it might be a nice area to even define. So, you know, if people are listening and they're interested in a similar path, again, whether that's just you know software engineering, whether that's maybe more specifically cybersecurity. Where would you suggest people start and, you know, what would help them get to where you are today? There is a plethora of um, amazing free resources on there. Um, my big thing would be is with technology, 
you need to love it first and foremost. You know, if you already love anthropology, you know, that's great. Um, but if you're, if you're looking for an element of tech um, that's really going to interest you, do go to or listen to lots of talks online in loads of different areas. Don't just think there's only software development or you know cybersecurity. There's there's a whole world out there of like data, um, artificial intelligence, machine learning. Um, it's technology is so vast. So wherever you lay your hat as an anthropologist, there's just so much opportunity there. In particular, I'm quite interested in the moment. Um, it's about what uh, AI generated content will do to culture. Um, I, I saw a fantastic talk and her name escapes me, unfortunately, but um, and she she wrote this amazing book about um, AI and she said that by 2025, she reckons that 80% of the video content uh, on YouTube will be AI generated because I don't know if you've seen things like uh, Weird Dali and um, things playing around that way. You just, you can do so on your phone type in some random words and it will create a user generated uh, an AI generated image for you there um, and it takes seconds something that would you know would take Pixar years and years and years to create um, you know thinking of the first Toy Story movie can, can take seconds on your phone so I'm really interested in actually if all content is going to be computer generated and potentially you know quite a lot of the AI is able to you just teach it things um my, my partner's um, recently taught um, an AI bot. He fed it loads of books and said, write me a story based on this. And it was scarily good. Like, you know, not 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 like great literature or anything like that, but it was actually for a machine to just create this content. It's interesting. Now, bearing in mind that our culture is, you know, almost built on the fact that we create literature, the music we create, the art we create, the things that influence us visually, um, the things we listen to, all that kind of thing. How is that going to have an impact? To me, anthropology and um, artificial intelligence and machine learning, I think that's going to be the next big technology area for anthropologists. And I think um, it's something I'm interested in doing, um, but I've got to try and figure out how do I... Uh, jump ship and, and go from uh, software development to cybersecurity to uh, uh, machine learning and AI. So if anybody was interested in getting in touch with you, where would be a good place? Um, like everyone else, I'm on LinkedIn. So that's uh, Leanne Potter. Um, I'm also on Twitter and tech underscore soapbox. You also have a book coming out, I believe, or working on a book? Well, I, I'm currently working on a book. Um, I'm working on it with um, an, another uh, co-author. It's going to be um, on product security. Uh, well, how product owners deal with security. So um, the person I'm writing the book with has a huge library on, um, so he's a, he's an ex-developer, he's now a CTO, has a huge library on software development books and product owner books, absolutely huge, hundreds and hundreds of books. We spent a, a day one time looking through them and we could not find um, more than a sentence on security in some of these books. And, and quite a lot of these books had nothing on security. So we've decided to uh, change that and write a book on product security. We'll look forward to it. So Leanne, thanks for coming on the podcast. It was, uh, it was great to get to meet you and, and hear about your work. Pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Anthropology and Business Podcast. To learn everything you need to break into business anthropology and why business anthropology is one of the best lenses for contributing to business success, visit my website at madarts.me 
where I cover many topics related to business anthropology and beyond. There you will find all the podcast episodes, blogs, and news. Please like, share, and subscribe. See you next time.